0: I'm Nick Spencer, and this is the final episode in the first series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that explores the books and the ideas that are shaping us today. Over this series, we've talked about meritocracy, secularism, dementia, inequality, rights, the law, the brain, and today we're tackling liberalism and religion. How are we... Modern, liberal minded people that we are, supposed to deal with religion. It's a question we've been asking ourselves a great deal over the last 50 years, as the historic dominance of Christianity in the West has waned, and society has simultaneously become more secular and more religiously plural. But even asking the question, or at least asking it in that way, presupposes a certain problematic approach. Religion, by this reckoning, is the other, an invasive alien presence that we, whoever we are, need to contain. Worse, this opposition can take the form of us, liberal, neutral, secular, rational, versus them, illiberal, religious, tribal, irrational. And when they somehow feel they're not getting equitable treatment or a fair hearing, you get the kind of angry response we see in many secular countries such as France, America, Turkey and India. In other words, is it possible to bridge this gap and put forward a vision of liberalism that really does get religion? Cecile Laborde is Nuffield Professor of Political Theory at the University of Oxford. She's the author of Liberalism's Religion a forensically thoughtful book that examines the way in which liberalism understands and deals with religion, and which recently won the prestigious Spitz Prize from the International Conference for the Study of Political Thoughts. Cécile, welcome to Reading Our Times.
1: Hello, I'm really pleased to be here.
0: I want to begin with a little bit of history, which I think provides some important historical context for the discussion of religion and liberalism. The received story is that the liberal state emerged as a response to, indeed, as a peaceful solution to religious violence. In other words, that liberalism was a kind of solution to religion. But you draw on an increasing body of scholarship to show that, historically speaking, that's not quite true, is it?
1: Well, I think it's only partly true. So the founding myth of Western liberal theory... Is that the liberal state emerged out of post-Reformation religious wars through a process of separation between politics and religion? So states came to be defined less and less by an official religion, and this obviously provided scope for freedom of religion and more religious diversity. However, it's true that recent scholarship provides a slightly more complicated picture than this. So, first, it seems that What emerges is not so much a liberal state, because that came much later, of course, as an absolutist state that asserted the autonomy of the political sphere against the religious and private sphere. And second, it's not the case that before what some historians have called the great separation between religion and politics, it's not the case that before that so-called great separation, there were just two discrete areas that somehow got hopefully confused and conflated before modernity provided clarification. In fact, I think the interesting starting point for my work is that the modern state itself created the modern category of religion. So what we mean by religion today was created in the crucible of the religious wars of the 17th century and thereafter. So what really interests me are not so much the historical facts as the social imaginary of liberalism, so how the liberal tradition constructed itself in relation to how it imagined religion. Mm. Because it seems to me that our conceptions of the public and the private, freedom and oppression reason and unreason, unity and difference, were really constructed in relation to how we imagined religion. So that's really the starting point of my book. What do we think a religion is? You know, what is the concept of religion that is lurking behind our uh, historical self-understanding? And this is, I think, more complicated than, than meets the eye. So yeah, it is too simplistic to say that The liberal state is somehow a-religious, or the antonym of religion, or that it is, as you say, the solution to religion.
0: Well, we like undermining simplicity on reading our times, so we're having exactly the right discussion here. The historical picture then is a bit simplistic, and that leads to the contemporary picture. And the central argument of your book, which is that the way that much political theory understands religion is altogether a bit too simplistic. You Argue that we need to disaggregate religion, to take it apart into its constituent elements in order to get a more accurate understanding and a more workable understanding. So, first, let's begin. Why do we need to disaggregate religion? Let's start there.
1: Well, we've inherited a view of religion that is shaped by the very specific Christian background of the 17th century emergence of the modern state. So, then religion came to be defined politically, that is, came to be defined primarily as a set of personal beliefs that were essentially non-political, they're private, and they're rooted in faith, not in reason, and beliefs that have to do with the salvation of souls in the afterlife, rather than this life on Earth. But of course, when we think of religion and how it interacts with the public sphere and the social sphere, it's much more than this, I think. So, when you think of it, think about it. Many religions are not based on belief but on conduct. You know, the so-called orthopractic religions. So, think of Orthodox Judaism or Hinduism. You know, they're very different from the classic liberal view of liberal philosophers like John Locke, who thought that who held the Protestant view that real religion really lie in belief, not in Uh, Practices. Uh, Religions also are not simply about the personal good or the private good that every individual is supposed to pursue in his or her own way. Uh, Religions hold views about the common good, about political justice, about the state. We can also see that religions are modes of collective identity. So people historically have been discriminated against or persecuted because of their religion but often because of their perceived religions, perhaps because they're perceived to be Jews or they're perceived to be Muslims or Christians. Or, and here, religion sometimes has little to do with belief or practices. Right? You can be religiously persecuted, even if you don't hold mm. the belief associated with that religion. Another way in which religious identification takes place is when people identify with a religion without sharing the beliefs associated with it. So many Europeans, for example, began to self-identify as Christians after 9-11. It didn't mean that they suddenly began to believe in Christ and the resurrection, but it really meant that they were trying to defend perhaps a European identity that was besieged by Muslim terrorists or something like that. So if you think of all those dimensions of what we call religion. I think the problem is when we talk about the relationship between religion and public life, we tend to mix them up. We tend to mix up these dimensions. We're not sure which one we're talking about. So what I try to do in the book is to isolate the different dimensions of religion that are relevant politically. So it's not really about saying what religion really is or what it should be for people. It's really identifying the multiple ways in which religion interacts with the state and our public life, how it becomes politically salient. And I try to do that in ways that do not simply speak to our specific Christian Western experience, but also in ways that are relevant to countries with different histories and different religions, from India to Israel, for example.
0: One of the strengths of this approach is that it helps us negotiate that vexed discussion between religion and non-religion in society, doesn't it? Because if you have this thing called religion, it's difficult to know what the equivalent is, for non-religion. But if, conversely, you disaggregate religion into its different dimensions, you can find, as it were, bits of religion that echo and are parallel to bits of non-religion.
1: That's right, yes. Yeah. So let's start to think of which criteria, which dimension of religion is going to be relevant to the question of why we should have a secular state, by which I mean a non-religious or non-theocratic state, right? a very basic level in which the state shouldn't impose and enforce one religion. Well, why should that be the case? And I think there are three different reasons that align with different dimensions of religion. But when you think of it, secular beliefs, identities and uh, associations might also exhibit those dimensions, and then the state should not associate with them for the same reason. So just to be more concrete, let's just think about why should we think that the state should not be a religious state? I think there are three different reasons. So the first one, I want to call democratic accessibility. I think state officials should be able to justify their actions and their policies through reasons and principles that people could understand, just to put it very simply, right? So a religious state is a state that fails to do that. It fails to provide citizens with reasons that are accessible to all citizens. So if I'm a Christian citizen in a Muslim state, or if I'm an atheist in a Christian state, and if the state appeals to the truth of the Quran or the Bible to impose laws on me, then I'm not respected as a democratic reasoner, someone who can engage in public deliberation about the justness of state laws with others. So that's one reason. Then there's a fairly separate reason for why we think the state shouldn't enforce a religion. It has to do with personal liberty. Why is that? Because religions are often comprehensive ways of life. They tend to rule over the multifaceted dimensions of our life, from sexuality to education, And so a state enforcing one specific conception of those things on everyone would infringe on all our personal liberties, our ability to live our lives by our own lights. So that's the second reason. The third dimension of the secular state, or the non-religious state, is more of an equality-based reason. So you might think that a theocratic state or a religious state treats non-members of the majority religion as second-class citizens. You know, he would give preferential treatment to the majority religion. And here, you can see that religion is a bit different here. It's more like a collective identity, and it's important to show equal respect to different kinds of collective identities. So when you think of it in that way, you have three different values, liberal values, democratic accessibility, personal liberty, and Equality and they kind of connect to different dimensions of religion that are not unique to religion, right? Mm. Because you can think of secular beliefs, identities, and conceptions that are also inaccessible, just like religion, that are also comprehensive and infringing on personal liberty, as well as non egalitarian.
0: And that is, I think, one of the really crucial points that you make in your book, because historically, those arguments in the hands of liberal political philosophers have been directed almost exclusively at religions and used to either silence or to sideline or to bypass religious participation in public in one form or another. But your argument is, and I think this is a particularly fascinating turn in liberal political philosophy, that in actual fact, There are forms of liberalism that should be prepared to accept parts of religious identity or language or participation or whatever it is in a state in a way that doesn't actually undermine the basic fairness and equality of that state. So you're actually admitting more religious participation, or at least potentially, than has historically been the case in a lot of liberal political philosophers, aren't you?
1: That's right. So... For example, many liberal philosophers think that religious references should be banned from the public sphere altogether, but my view is a bit different. So I think it's only state officials who are under a duty not to invoke solely religious reasons to justify state coercion, because they have a special responsibility to provide reasons that can thereafter be the object of democratic deliberation, right? So there is a kind of accessibility threshold that reasons should reach. But I don't think this so-called duty of restraint, as philosophers call it, applies to ordinary citizens, or churches, or associations, or various lobbying groups in civil society. I think generally, democratic communication happens the more ideas are thrown into the marketplace of ideas. So there's no special reason, I think, why religious ideas should be given special treatment, insofar as they are, is when they are inaccessible. But I don't think every religiously influenced idea or concept is thereby inaccessible. And secondly, I think the duty only to offer accessible reasons only apply to state officials, not not to the rest of us.
0: And conversely, you could argue that there were comprehensive worldviews that were secular, perhaps a kind of a deep ecological view or certain feminist views or whatever it is, that were comprehensive in themselves, that could in theory fall under the same restrictions as religious comprehensive views.
1: That's right. So take the example of form of what we might call comprehensive secularism's. So a comprehensive secularist ideology would be a philosophy that would be rooted, say, in a Kantian or a million or a Marxian view of individual emancipation. And it would take every kind of religious belonging or religious belief as a form of individual oppression or a form of individual alienation. And therefore, it would have, you know, pretty strong views as to the place of the limited place of religion in society seems to me that insofar as a view such as this doesn't give proper weight to liberal values such as freedom of conscience or freedom of association or even rights to do wrong in certain contexts is not properly liberal. So I think of liberalism as a broad church family that includes a range of reasonable views about justice and what are excluded are comprehensive views of the good. And this can be comprehensively religious views or comprehensively secularist views. But the kind of secularism I'm interested in is a political secularism. So it's, it's a liberal version of secularism that provides the fairest terms of cooperation within the same state between religious and non-religious citizens. Mm. And I think there is politically there is really no alternative to that kind of to that kind of secularism.
0: Rowan Williams has written in the past of a difference between what he calls programmatic secularism and procedural secularism. I'm wondering how much your models of secularism map onto that. Rowan Williams' idea of programmatic secularism effectively acts almost like a bouncer in a nightclub, which refuses to let people in, whereas procedural secularism acts more like an umpire or a referee in that it welcomes people onto the pitch, but it demands that they all play by the same rules. I think there's a similar distinction going on in your thinking about Secularism, isn't there?
1: There is. At the same time, I don't think secularism can be only procedural. So I think any state is going to have to take a view on very controversial boundary questions about what's the scope of equality laws, for example. And so even within the liberal families, there are going to be profound disagreements about crucial matters of the role of religion in public and social life. And liberals reasonably disagree. Mm. And no, the only procedure that can solve that disagreement is democratic contestation, mm. right? So I think those disagreements often end up being matters for democratic controversy. And I think that's right and proper, because I don't think there's only one liberal solution to those controversies. So in my view, secularism is compatible with both quite a a strict secular state that affirms equality as non-discrimination in most spheres of life, whilst maintaining respect for freedom of religion, of course, and on the other hand, a more pluralist liberal state that gives more leeway to both religious groups and religious believers to live, you know, to organize their life in their own way. Mm. My preference is for the former conception, so more, more of an egalitarian than a pluralist. But I want to say that pluralists are perfectly reasonable liberal citizens, and it's often a mistake for many liberal philosophers and liberal intellectuals to assimilate or to conflate the claims of reasonable religious believers with those of fundamentalists or integrists that they call sometimes in a continental context. Because I think there's a respectable range of of reasonable liberal views about highly contested matters.
0: I think that's an incredibly important distinction. There is a danger in this entire debate to judge your opponents or at least those you are arguing with according to the worst case scenarios as opposed to the best case scenarios. And so religion becomes synonymous with the kind of myopic, intolerant fundamentalism that doesn't have a place in society as opposed to a more reasoned, pluralistically minded form of religious belief. I do wonder how much of a significant shift this proposes in liberal political thought. Because at one point quite early on, you write, if we are to defend liberalism, we will have to give up or at least modify some claims made on belief of liberal neutrality. Liberalism is often treated as an attempt to move away from contested ideas of the good towards incontested ideas of the just. Are you saying here that an actual fact, that idea of liberal neutrality is a bit of a myth?
1: So I don't quite go as far as that. So I think there's a lot that is good about the liberal ambition of neutrality. This is clearly what prevents the liberal state from siding in favour of one religion against another, or it's also what prevents the liberal state from siding in favour of non-religion and oppress all religions, right? So it's crucially Mm. important that the state doesn't meddle with religious truth, and that he lets people live their lives in their own way. So that's a basic, correct intuition behind uh, liberal neutrality, it seems to me. And also, it's important to be clear about what we mean by neutrality. I think mm. critics of liberalism often complain that the liberal state is not neutral because it keeps interfering with religion. You know, he makes some harmful religious practices illegal. It entrenches irreligious views of sexuality and the family. It recognizes same sex marriages, etc. It forces Jehovah's Witnesses to have blood transfusions, etc. But this kind of criticism often misses a crucial point that the liberal state is not neutral about its own values. It's not morally agnostic. It's not morally neutral. It has its own values, the protection of human rights and justice, etc. So the only sphere he claims to be neutral about is the good, so the various way in which people live their life in just states. So my intervention is a narrow one, really, I I make two claims. The first one is, is what I call ethical salience. I think many liberals think that they don't need to make a distinction between various kinds of commitments. So so called important versus trivial commitments, right? So they think, well, you know, wearing a hijab. It's the same thing as wearing a clown's hat or, you know, it's what people get up to do, you know, or going to synagogue is the same thing as going to a football match. And I think that's a mistake. I don't think we give full credit to the importance of certain crucial liberal freedoms if we're not able to distinguish between a morally significant and morally less important commitments. So that's what I call the need for ethical salience within the thin theory of the good, within liberalism. And secondly, and in answer more directly to your question, Nick, I think liberals have to recognise that even though they should be committed to the priority of justice over the good, I think they have to recognise that the boundary between the just and the good is often really contested, right? So... When churches, you know, want to have total discretion in the management of their personnel, from clergy to teachers, is this a matter of the good, as they said, or does it fall under the domain of state law? You know, is it about justice, anti-discrimination, etc.? Or can the abortion controversy be settled without resolving the ethical question of the moral status of the fetus? So it seems to me that in cases like that, the boundary between the good and the right is essentially contested. There's really no position on of neutrality here. Yes. So that raises quite a profound challenge to liberalism because there's greater indeterminacy as to what liberal neutrality is going to be able to justify. Yes. So I think generally the upshot of my thinking is that liberals have to be more perhaps more modest and more honest about their own commitments, you know, instead Mm. of taking the higher moral ground of neutrality. Mm.
0: Well, let's look at what that might mean in practice. You say about halfway through the book that symbolic recognition of religion, conservative laws in matters of bioethics, religious accommodation from general laws and religious reference in public debates are not incompatible with minimal secularism and liberal legitimacy. Now, that is clearly going to shake quite a few liberals by the shoulders, isn't it? Because a number of those things are precisely the things that some have thought were incompatible with liberal legitimacy and secularism. But the whole logic of your argument is that there are certain practices or symbols or participations of religion that actually become admissible within your new kind of chastened vision and understanding of what liberalism is. Can you unpack that a bit for us? What does that chastened liberal state look like from a religious point of view?
1: So I suggested earlier that there's a range of families of justice, the conceptions of justice that are permissible within secularism. At one end, you will have an egalitarian state that be quite strict about enforcing equality laws, etc., and excluding many references to religion in the public sphere. And I think that can be a perfectly liberal state as long as it doesn't collapse into being a secularist state, as I described it earlier. Conversely, on the other side, a liberal state will be able to recognise many of the symbolic, historical and cultural dimensions of religion as long as that state doesn't impose one religion to all its citizens, as long as it doesn't force Its citizens to live by a particular religious faith, it can be a perfectly liberal state. So, the example I give of that hypothetical state called Divinitia is the one that has the laws you've just described. So, I was suggesting earlier that when we're asking whether a particular state is properly secular in the sense I explained earlier. There were three different dimensions, right? So a secular state must separate itself from religion when religion is inaccessible, comprehensive and divisive. But when it's not, then it's okay for the state to endorse a religion, not to enforce it, but to endorse it. So that explains the various provisors you just listed. So I don't think all religious references are inaccessible in public reason. So clearly appeal to the will of a particular God within a particular faith tradition that won't be accessible to all citizens, mm. notably those who don't share the faith. But more general ideas, such as you know, the values about human dignity, values about stewardship duties to the world, solidarity with the vulnerable and the destitute, these are all accessible ideas, mm. even when they are framed within a religious ethos. Mm.
0: I have a, and naturally have a great sympathy with that view, and there's a whole body of Catholic social teaching which obviously resides very heavily on scriptures and church tradition, but it is often articulated in such a way in papal encyclicals in and so on and so forth that it is accessible to people who won't be Catholics. But I want to take a slight step back from that particular example and just ask a little bit about accessibility. Because whereas I completely understand your point about it would be improper to admit inaccessible reasons, whether they are religious or secularist, into a kind of plural public debate, that does assume that there are reasons that will be accessible, naturally, to all intelligent, informed people within a plural society. Is that really the case? Is it not the case that we should actually expect dissensus rather than consensus on any issue in a plural society?
1: So this phrase is really a complex question about the epistemic of public reason and what does it mean for a reason to be public? Does it need to be universally accessible? Or do you go on to identify the minimal criteria of acceptability that don't mean universal acceptance so it gets, it gets really complicated to sort these things out. But I was really working from a very intuitive starting point. You know, it's hard to give a good philosophical argument for it. But the intuitive thought is that sometimes we are going to be coerced in the name of reasons we disagree with. This is what he means to live in a democracy. But it's worse, seems to me, when you don't understand the reason. It's one thing to disagree with the reason and to have reasons for your disagreement, so to say, but it's a different thing, you know, to be coerced, to be sent to prison for something that just doesn't make any sense to you. So it's that kind of intuition that I start from, and I think it's an intuition that people share whether they are believers or not, because uh, it doesn't say anything about where that reason comes from, but it says something about respecting a basic standard of mutual communication. And it's interesting you were talking about the Catholic social tradition of natural law thinking exactly that precisely appears to very similar intuition.
0: Accessibility is one of those things, isn't it, that it's incredibly difficult to justify and explain and pin down, but you do tend to intuitively recognise these things that are inaccessible and accessible, and there may indeed be a grey area in between, but our first reaction in these things, as so often is the case, is, is an intuitive one. In our last few minutes together, then, let's try and ground the conversation because it's been fascinating, but as is always the danger with these things, quite theoretical. There are a whole number of very concrete aspects and dimensions of religion in contemporary society that come into play here in this country in England and Scotland you have the question of the establishment of religion but then you have questions of whether state officials can appeal to religious convictions when they're debating or when they're passing laws whether religious symbols can be exhibited in the public square of course an extremely hot debate in the U.S whether churches can maintain the, what's known in the US as the ministerial exception, how much freedom they have to appoint their own staff members, and so on and so forth. Just pick up kind of one or two specific examples from that lot that would ground the suggested changes you're making.
1: Okay, so the contribution of my book to these debates is not to to give answers, right? Because, you know, part of the book really is trying to identify where the legitimate disagreement is and to give conceptions and ways of thinking about the problem that can illuminate our disagreements. So in all those cases, I'd want to the question I would want to ask is which dimension of religion is at stake here? And how does it relate to what we think is mm. bad or problematic or dangerous about religion in the public sphere? Mm. So let us talk about Anglican establishment in this country, for example. So that looks like a simple question, you know, is it compatible with liberalism or not? Well my answer would have to be, be more com- complex. There are different dimensions of Anglican establishment and they relate to religion in different ways, right? Mm-hmm. So first thing I would say about this is, the first question you want to ask about a state that recognises a religion is, is it a religious state? That is, you know, does it actually enforce a religion? Does it mean that people have different rights? And of course, it's not the case with Anglican establishment. Most of that establishment is mostly symbolic And I'm not saying that symbolism is never problematic. It's very problematic in societies such as Northern Ireland, for example. England, I think, is a bit different. I think, you know, you'd be hard-pressed to say that Anglicans are the dominant group in society. (laughs) So you might think that, you know, British society is secularized enough probably to be able to cope with a bit of religious symbolism. But I wouldn't stop there, because when you look at it in more detail, there are other dimensions of Anglican establishment that are not only symbolic. So I just highlight a couple. So one of them is where well, the role of bishops in the House of Lords—you know—they have a legislative role and they play their part in same-sex marriage legislation, for example. And some people might think, mm, is that a part that they should play, right? So we have an interesting conversation to have here about democratic equality. Anglican establishment might be acceptable if it were purely symbolic, but I don't think it's purely symbolic, so we might want to look at more fine grained details of that complex arrangement. So here is an interesting democratic question as to you know who should have a right of veto from democratically elected laws. so that's one aspect of establishment. I think there's also a legitimate query about the role of religious education in many schools, including, obviously, faith state schools. And uh, in some schools, it's quite difficult to opt out of religious education. So here you might think this is not simply symbolic. And the third dimension that I personally find problematic is the Anglican Church's refusal to officiate same-sex marriages. So you might think on the kind of equality view of secularism, I think this might make same-sex couples feel like second-class citizens. I think it's okay generally for a church to reserve the sacred bonds of marriage to heterosexual couples, but only if that church is not the established church. Mm -hmm. I think if the church is an established church, I think it should really apply the law of the land. So that would be, I think, one consideration for Mm -hmm. disestablishment. But as you can see, you have to ask different questions, I think. And It's not simply a yes or no answer.
0: Cecile, it's been wonderful talking to you. The book is called Liberalism's Religion. Cecile, thank you for speaking to Reading Our Times.
1: It was a pleasure. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to the final episode in the first series of Reading Our Times, which comes to you from the Think Tank Theos. I want to express my deep thanks to all my guests this series. Michael Sandel, Charles Taylor, Nikki Girard, Thomas Piketty, Nigel Bigger, Ian McGilchrist, Jonathan Sumption and Cecile Laborde. I want to thank my producer, Phil Bodger, and the team at Theos, Abby Allison, Lizzie Stanley and Elizabeth Oldfield for their great work and Nina Humphreys, Who composed our wonderful theme tune? I also want to thank you for listening. I sincerely hope you've enjoyed the series, and in particular, the way we've tried to let in the light on some genuinely complex debates. I also hope it's inspired you to read some of the books we've been talking about. Please do recommend the podcast to friends and rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen. We'll be back with you next year for a second series. In the meantime, happy Christmas to you all.